Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Who were these citizen spies who risked their lives to bring George Washington the intelligence the general needed to win the war for independence? We'll take a fictional trip back to the times that tried men's souls. But first, hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat, sorry, it's not a tricorn hat, but it is a hat indeed, to everybody who's enjoying today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. You can find me at historyauthor.com and across social media platforms. Plus, you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events through the lens of the history I've learned through all these books behind me. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the American Revolution, one of my favorite periods of history. And once there, we'll meet the people who fought for liberty, not with muskets, but with their wits, secrecy, and cunning. Our guide on this journey is S.W. O'Connell, and he brings us The Patriot Spy. It's book one of the Yankee Doodle Spy series. The next books are book two, The Cavalier Spy, and book three, which is titled The Winter Spy. S.W. O'Connell is a retired U.S. Army intelligence officer who has served in a wide variety of counterintelligence assignments around the world, including NATO. Upon retirement, he decided to mix his love of history with his military experiences to craft historical novels. And I'll tell you, the result is really enjoyable. You can visit him at yankeedoodlespies.blogspot.com or on Facebook and at S.W. O'Connell on Twitter. Okay, now that we've been given our super secret cipher for the Continental Army's next mission, let's join S.W. O'Connell and meet the Patriot Spy. And here we are with S.W. O'Connell. He's here to chat with us about The Patriot Spy, book one of the Yankee Doodle Spy series. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show, sir. Thank you, Dean. Glad to be here. Well, glad to have you. And The Patriot Spy is the kind of book that I love. I come from New Jersey, and in this northern New Jersey, New York area, West Point's right up there. There's so much that happened in that revolutionary era. I go to the restaurant off in the old 76 house where they brought the conspirator who the the British officer, Major Andre, who conspired with Benedict Arnold. They have there's a lot of great history there. There's a marker right where they where they put him up on the gallows there for spying on us. So it's very alive to me, and I love that your series brings that alive for your readers. You start the prologue of The Patriot Spy with a quote that I'll just read for everybody out there. In the summer of 1776, Great Britain had almost two-thirds of its army and half of the Royal Navy in North America, unquote. Now, I just glossed over that, but that's a huge force. So describe how those daunting odds forced Lieutenant General George Washington's army to fight asymmetrically, to use those spies and how that helped you write a narrative about these true underdogs who are fighting for the cause of liberty. Yeah, it's really an amazing story. I would say that the, uh, the intent going into it was not to fight an asymmetric war, 
their actual intent was to take on the, the, the British head on. They, uh, uh, Washington, and this is throughout the war, always hoped to reenact bu a Bunker Hill scenario where Americans shoulder to shoulder, face to face with the British, take down the regulars and, and beat them at their own game. So that was always his, his real goal. Uh, throughout the war, circumstances and the aides around him dissuaded him from doing it uh, because the one thing that kept the United States going throughout this period was the Continental Army. It didn't matter how big it was because it got really small. It was pretty big when the British landed on Staten Island and growing, uh, almost as big as the British actually. Mostly militia, so not, not as well trained and equipped. But uh, throughout the war, the key, for, the key was to keep that army going. So, but Washington's intent was to fight the British, right? He was not particularly daunted by their numbers. Uh, he really felt uh, they had the troops that, that could take them on. They did it up around Boston. He drove them out of Boston. And it was just a matter of getting, getting it to the right place in time. Unfortunately, he did make some pretty, uh, uh, some pretty bad tactical mistakes uh, from a military perspective. He divided his force in the face of the enemy. He did not have great intel he didn't know where they were going to strike. And since they had the Navy, he didn't. They could land anywhere on Manhattan, uh, anywhere on the littoral of Long Island, Brooklyn, Queens, or, or even go past. The British sent a couple of ships up past uh, the Bronx, got through the, the uh, guns. And they found that the American guns couldn't range and get them. So they had free range up the Hudson, up the East River. So that, that kind of restricted him. But he, he split his forces, put a screening force out there, and that's kind of the opening of the book. My guys are uh, become part of that. Uh, those forces guarding the passes in in Brooklyn, where, where today where Prospect Park is and Park Slope, that area. Uh, and then he had the rest on Manhattan. And then later moved another chunk over, second wave uh, over to better defend. But it wasn't enough. The British uh, the British got their whole you know twenty four thousand or so landed uh, right by uh, where it's today Fort Hamilton and the uh, and the Verrazano Bridge. They landed Graves Inn. And I will say the, the British, uh, William Howe, gets a lot of disrespect, uh, some of it deserved, for his handling of the war. Uh, this was a classic campaign. It was a brilliant use of combined arms, Navy. Didn't, didn't hurt that his brother, Richard Howe, was the British naval commander. <laughs> Their cooperation was excellent. He got, got his forces in and he had a brilliant strategy uh, uh, pinning Washington's front with uh, about 5,000 men and everybody else making a night move, which uh, was guided by loyalist spies for the British, uh, showed them the one pass that was not covered other than a couple of mounted officers who got captured. And the uh, British were able to swing out. Basically, if you're from New York, they, they went up, uh, they went up the, the King's Highway and then uh, down Atlantic Avenue came in behind the American lines. And uh, at that point, any defense was pretty hopeless. And the army was, was pretty much, they fought, but those who could fought. And I tried to display as much of that in the opening scenes of the book. That's kind of, kind of it. A critical battle in the sense that it was our first battle as a nation. The, uh, the declaration was issued the previous month. Washington had been pressuring Congress to make it and get it done so his men would know what they're fighting for. He actually uh, had a formation on Manhattan when the declaration was finally delivered and he had officers read it to all the men. 
So uh, he made a big deal out of it. So this was the first battle America fought as a nation. One of the reasons why I started the book here and not say up in Boston, which could have been instinctive. And then there were personal reasons for starting it, starting it with the Battle of Long Island. You're citing a bunch of spots there and the Patriot spy does indeed unfold over Manhattan, Staten Island, Brooklyn, Long Island. See the names there, they're all islands. So that Navy comes in important, the equivalent, I guess, today of having air superiority. But we have New Jersey, the crossroads of the revolution here. I grew up seeing all those signs about Washington's retreat, reading the declaration that something that happens down at, at Rutgers, where I went to university. There's a marker there. It's, I think, the third place that they read the declaration to the people at a church right, right, near, the, right near the university, right near the train station, actually, in New Brunswick. But those are few and far between when you're talking about a major major metropolitan area like New York City and environs. We have malls there. We have places that are put up, maybe named continental. You were just talking about the, the modern parks that are in places like Brooklyn and, and up in the Bronx. So how do you go about painting that picture for your readers? Because it's harder to walk that land. Now there's bridges, there's tolls, there are skyscrapers. So you can't go and walk, say, Gettysburg. You have to, you have to imagine it from what you've read and then see what you can go and experience that's, that hasn't been obliterated. So how do you bring that experience to your readers in the Yankee Doodle Spy series so it rings true for them? That's a really good question. And it was somewhat of a challenge. Now, I, I, originated, I originally started the, uh, the book at this particular location because I grew up near there. And I remembered as a boy, I must have been nine. My father was in the New York National Guard. He was a company commander. He took me, we were in Prospect Park, and he took me to the Maryland Monument there. I didn't know what that was, but he gave me this big speech about how the Maryland Regiment helped uh, save the Army by holding off the British in suicide, basically suicide attacks, which is a scene in the book. Uh, I was just a kid, but it resonated with me because I remember him saying, and the Maryland National Guard comes up every year and lays a wreath here on, at this monument. So it took place right there in Prospect Park. So if you, I've been to Prospect, grew up near there and been there many times. So you got the idea of uh, undulating land, lots of trees, but, but lots of open fields as well. Uh, so I had a feel for that because of the land there. Also, uh, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which is one of the largest in the nation, has a lot of famous Americans buried there. Uh, that monuments is probably monuments the best, best. Yeah, but it's also the best preserved landscape. You can, if you can take the tombstones and mausoleums out of your head, that's what the land looked like pretty much at the time of the of this uh, campaign. Uh, uh, Brooklyn, Long Island, that whole that whole area was beautiful farmland, well tended by very industrious Dutch settlers and later English settlers. Uh, it was really. Uh, a sight to behold, uh, you know, nobody would have imagined it being the uh, built up area it is. Now, I went back as I was writing these books years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago now, 12 years ago, to try to find some specific sites. And it's real tough. Uh, uh, there's very little. The old stone house is still there. Uh, it was moved, but it's it's still there as a micro, a micro park. And that was a, a house that became a central point of the battle for a while. And uh, ironically, in the mid-19th century, it became the first clubhouse of the Brooklyn Dodger baseball team. But uh, the, uh, I remember going to a site where 
the Maryland Regiment might have actually fought and many men fell and were buried. And I wrote about this in a blog and it was a, a basically a car repair shop on a corner of like Fourth Avenue and whatever street it was all built up. And I'm just there looking to try to find us. I had a guidebook from years ago that said there was a plaque. So some guy comes out, it was like something out of the Sopranos. Uh, How are you doing? I said, I'm doing good. Said, what are you looking for? I said, well, uh, I want to find a place where they're buried. Said, Who's buried? That got his attention. I said, you've got 300 people buried somewhere near here. He goes, what do you mean? <laughs> and I said, American Revolution, uh, there's supposed to be a plaque. And he goes, oh, probably that building over there. The building had been just torn down. So modernization just continues to grind away at the, uh, at the landscape there. But I was able to visualize it and, and, uh, and build, I think, paint a picture of what it looked like. And more importantly, what it was like for the men and what the men were going through. Uh, I try to bring that out uh, through my main set of characters. But I, I weave historical characters in with my fictional characters. So George Washington will have a, a speaking role throughout all my books. And he's kind of always in the background. And others come in, Alexander Hamilton, whomever, depending on Nathaniel Green. So I get them in. They have cameos. They come and they go. They interact with my main characters. Uh, but I try to tell the story through ultimately Jeremiah Creed and his, his kind of uh, band of patriot spies. You spoke about mixing the real characters with the fictional characters. And you do that in an amazing way. I don't think I've ever heard an author tell me quite this story. So I'll ask you to share it with everybody today. And that's your intelligence hero for the Patriot spy, Colonel John Fitzgerald. There is an, an incredible story behind it. A really, really strange, kind of an eerie one. You, you feel like you were meant to write this book. Tell us who he is as a character and who the guy with that name was, who really was doing work for the Continental Army to counter the mighty British. Well, the uh, no, Robert Fitzgerald was an aide uh, for Washington. Actually, I concocted the name Fitzgerald. I, I and I'm doing research as I'm writing. But to be blunt, I'm not an expert, or at least wasn't at the time on the American Revolution. I'm more of a Napoleonic War guy, World War II, uh, and in my all my my army experience. But uh, so I'm learning as I'm going along, and that was part of the fun of doing this when you, when you pick up a, a new genre and get into it. So I, I concocted the name, Fitz, I don't know where I got the name, it was just there. In my mind, I was basing him off an actual man I worked with who was much older than me, white hair. So he, he looked a lot like the Bob Fitzgerald I paint, older white-haired guy, a little cranky. Uh, and his name was Bob Horan, actually. He passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, he, uh, so he was sort of the model Fitzgerald himself was an act. Then I find out later there was an actual Fitzgerald, Robert Fitzgerald, the colonel, who uh, who was uh, Washington's aide for about a year and a half. Then he went off to a, a lot of these guys would come in and they would, you know, they they punch their ticket as an aide and then they, they, they use that to get a command. That's what he did. He got wounded. I want to say he got wounded at Monmouth and uh, and then was had to leave the military because of the wounds. The. Uh, so my guy was really more fictional. It was in my mind that Washington himself was his own intel officer. He was, you know, he was the great uh, case officer, the great intel analyst, as well as military planner and logistician. Uh, he really valued intel. Uh, he, you know, later on in my 
stories, we bring in people like Benjamin Talmadge, who then conducted Intel directly for Washington. But at the time, he was kind of on his own. And they valued Intel. He, he always valued knowledge of the enemy and valued protecting his plans from the enemy. Those were his big fear, especially losing his plans. You know, there was a plot against him while he was in New York during that period. I didn't cover that in the book. Uh, I build in a fictional plot against Washington in a later book. Uh, I just did that because uh, it took place a little too early. And I, I just didn't, there's no way I could connect that to my main characters. And that sort of drives things. So Creed and company at that point are in the Maryland Regiment, the first Maryland Continental Line, one of the crack regiments in the, uh, the army. Uh, he was an immigrant get him over to America. He's trying to establish himself and through an unfortunate series of events, he decides it's in his interest to uh, join the, the Continental Army and get out of Maryland for a while. So that's what he does. So he's sort of an enigma to his people in the beginning. He's got an accent. They're not quite sure where he's from. Uh, they're all thrown together. So I try to show how people from different walks of life get thrown together in the military and then have to figure out as they go along uh, how it's all going to work for them. And that's really what warfare is about. You know, they've studied men in combat and women now, but uh, people in combat, they don't fight for the cause. They don't fight for the commander. They do a little bit. They may use those names, but ultimately they fight for each other. So you're fighting for the guy on your left, the guy on your right, the guy who's got your back. And that's when you're building effective units, that's what you want them to do. And uh, that kind of that's why so many Medal of Honor winners were, died uh, earning the Medal of Honor, trying to save people, typically you know, wounded, uh, comrades left behind. Uh, not so many get it you know, charging a bunker. I mean, we have them too, but uh, uh, the key thing in combat is you take care of me and I'll take care of you. So I build this little band of brothers that sort of uh, starts to grow around Jeremiah Creed. His units kind of trashed. And then Washington, of course, sees him in the book uh, perform a heroic act at the Battle of Long Island. I won't go into what that is, but he decides uh, maybe I can use this guy to help me get a better handle on what the British are about. And uh, things take off from there. So Robert Fitzgerald himself, in, uh, in my stories, uh, he's a foil, and, and, and I keep him throughout because it was really Washington on his own, but just to move the story along, I couldn't have Creed interact with Washington all the time. So I, I built this guy up and he doesn't get much respect because Intel officers typically don't, even when you get it right. So, and you don't always get it right. So it's uh, uh, having been in that business and the counter side, neither side is very uh, welcoming because you're, you're always, one way or the other, you're bringing bad news. <laughs> Well, that's a perfect segue because you indeed did serve in U.S. Army intelligence, and thank you for your service there to, to the United States and to the cause of liberty and preserving it. I wanted to go to a video question here from our mutual friend, Thomas J. Howley. I interviewed him about his novel, Wolf of Clontarf, The Irish, the Vikings, and the Foreigners of the World. You can find that interview in our archives. He submitted a video question for you. So let's roll that. And I think it'll go just with what you're saying there. And you can have that expanding on that answer. Hello, Scott. This is your army bud, Tom Howley. And as you know, I've read all of your books. 
on the Revolutionary War and espionage. And my question is, what aspects of your long career in Army intelligence influenced what you wrote in your spy series about the Revolutionary War? I got to believe that there was some things that happened in our mutual experiences that um, may be manifested in your book one way or another. Thanks. Great question. Absolutely true. Uh, one of the main reasons I, and I will say that working in Intel and counter Intel, especially, I can't tell you how many of my colleagues, said, oh, I'm going to write a spy book someday. I'm going to write a spy book someday. I decided, well, maybe I will too. And I did it, but I felt really strongly about writing about like what I did uh, during the cold war, which was most of what I did. Uh, and I, so I decided I can take the principles and the, uh, the feel, the sense of what it was like to be involved in these things, but set it before the Constitution. That way I don't violate Title 18 U.S. Code and give away secrets. Uh, didn't exist the Constitution yet. So I'm off the hook. Uh, so that's what I did. I kind of do, I do transpose the tactics, the techniques, even the military stuff, because I've been a really strong student of military history and tactics, especially of that period, primarily the, primarily the Napoleonic Wars. So I'm familiar with skirmishing and battle formations and use of muskets, sabers, uh, the artillery of the day, how that all interacted. Uh, but the modern ideas, the, the ideas I actually was exposed to during the Cold War for working work with great people throughout that period, uh, even people you didn't get along with, everybody was pulling towards the same effort, which was to root out espionage, uh, identify terrorist threats to the military when I was doing that. And most of my career, that's what was those two things. And then, uh, uh, then I've been an intel officer at both the tactical level, battalion, maneuver battalion in the folded gap, uh, and then the senior analyst when we go to war for U.S. Army Europe uh, for three years, uh, where we we go off in... This was the Soviet Warsaw Pact threat, but putting all that together uh, in both uh, conventional and non-conventional warfare scenarios. So I do, I, and I can't say I had a checklist, but as I create a scene where Washington's planning something, I mean, I've sat with generals that I briefed and I saw them, you know, how they would gather around maps. And even as a young captain, uh, the thought process that went back and forth, sometimes one guy dominating the other, uh, whose idea was better, how they resolved it and, and, and put together a plan. So I, that came from my military experience. The actual tactical day-to-day -day collection, the absolutely uh, things that I, either I personally experienced, witnessed, or were, were revealed to me from colleagues who did great things that I didn't even get a chance to do, like Tom. Tom had a very unique mission I won't go into. But yes, uh, all those things I try to take the 20th century and 21st century experiences I've had and show them through the, through the, uh, the prism of, a, of an 18th century intel officer, commander in chief, and even some of the combat commanders and, that I portray in my various scenes in, in the books. There's another item of you and I and your readers living in the modern world, and that's language. And that always interests me as somebody who likes to read and likes to write that say Aaron Burr or George Washington 
Fitzgerald, the, the real one, they, they weren't speaking and writing in letters the way we would speak today. For instance, they had no emojis. If, if they wanted to smile at somebody, they had to move their face, as I've, I've told some uh, young interns there at IR Radio. And she said, that sounds exhausting. And when I said that, I said, yeah, we, we just had to smile if we wanted to smile at somebody or write the words. I'm, I'm looking up emojis now, like it's hieroglyphics, right, in my life. So how did you go about capturing those voices for your characters in the Yankee Doodle Spy series so that they would sound of the period, but they wouldn't take people out of it, especially since people use jargon. They use strange things like John Adams in, in his quote about Independence Day. He spells show S-H-E-W because that was the spelling at the time. So that's fairly easy to fix. But how do you deal with things like the language that they would have used at the time that can yank people out of it or strike the ear badly in some other way for your readers? That's a really good question. And that's really well. One of the hardest things about writing these types of books is to capture the period without getting too sucked into it. And uh, I think a couple of times I probably got too sucked into it as far as the uh, mimicking uh, the way people talk. So you always got to pull yourself back a little and smooth it out and make it a little bit more easy on the current, on the current reader's ear. But it is a real challenge. Uh, because I don't want, you know, George Washington to say, uh, move that battalion to Toity Toit Street and Toity Avenue. Uh, we've got to, we've got, you know, we've got to show a sense of, uh, a sense of uh, 18th century uh, cadence and syntax and how they talk. So I try to keep the cadence and syntax. I'll use those words, uh, but I'll, I'll have people use contractions. And I, and I think actually, in the, and how they spoke was probably, a little more natural than how they wrote and writing back then really up until the 1970s was was an art form you know we all learned it in school and you know for those of us who had nuns we really learned it and uh people wrote formally and were taught to write formal letters and now they're not even taught to write script so i think their writing was a bit more uh stodgy than how they actually talk so i i I can't just go off of written correspondence and, and judge from that. In fact, it was very effusive, as you know, and formal. And you'll see that when I when I have mock correspondence in the stories. Uh, I'll use all the flowery endings, you know, I, uh, your most respectful, humble, and obedient servant and all that. But typically, I, I, I try to just get a syntax and cadence. I, I think who the character is. Uh, if he's from Scotland, I'll try to get a little bit of that feel to it if he's... Uh, from kind of the frontier of America, which we had a pretty uh, large frontier, a little rougher voice to that character. Washington was a, you know, he was more of an aristocratic, uh, you know, planter class, a little bit more formal with Washington. He's probably the most formal speaker as I, as I build out these characters. And then you get the street people in the city. They're a little bit more closer to maybe what we, we would hear today. So that's really it, but it's a really, really tough thing because we go too far one way or the other. Uh, you can turn off your reader. You're enjoying my conversation with S.W. O'Connell. He's the author of The Patriot Spy, which is book one of the Yankee Doodle Spy series. Remember to check him out online. You can find his social media, his Twitter in particular. He's very active on there and also his blog. I'll link to all of those on the historyauthor.com page for this episode. Michael O. Varhola, author of 
Texas Confidential and publisher of Skirmisher Magazine, says James Bond meets George Washington in The Patriot Spy, a swashbuckling blend of espionage, intrigue, and military adventure. Scott, there's a key moment there, or a key comparison, and that's to James Bond. Here in the 21st century, we associate spycraft with guys like 007, with all of Q's gadgets, with computers, Kevlar. The it, it's gotten pretty uh, it's gotten pretty far ahead of actual technology. There's always a computer hacker now. It's 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 a little bit absurd, and I think with all those GPS trackers and other items, you lose track of the human element here. So. As somebody with an intelligence officer's wits who've seen that and knows that that's a key to success, how do you go about bringing that aspect of 1770s spycraft to life for modern readers who you want them to pick up the Patriot Spy and then the subsequent two books and not say, hey, where's the where's the somebody killing somebody with a pen or anything like that? How do you how do you pitch this? How do you design it as exciting for people who've been weaned on high-tech adventures like James Bond? Yeah, that's a difficult that's a uh, difficult issue to take on. And it was one I wrestled with in the beginning because, you know, there are people that like the Mission Impossible approach. And, uh, you know, there's only so much that was developed. And now they had really good tradecraft with the uh, uh, codes and ciphers and invisible ink got was developed during during the war and got better. Uh, and there's there are some books and periodicals that uh, delve into that. Uh, assassins tools, I don't uh, I you know they they just didn't exist other than the usual <laughs> ropes, knives, you know, uh, muskets, pistols, whatever. Uh, I, I actually went out of my way to avoid the technical side. So I'll refer to, to uh, so I don't have descriptions of how they created a code or, uh, but I do have scenes in almost all my books where that stuff is used, but it's, it's in the backdrop it's referred to, but I don't do a Tom Clancy and go in and try to wow you with all the details of what I know about the technical side. I've, I've worked a lot of technical things. That's why your book, your book is is a nice quick read, and Tom Clancy's books are like this. Not that I don't love Tom Clancy, but a lot of detail in there. Everything you ever saw in a sub has to include. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think there's great value in that when it's uh, for the right story, and I think for that story it was. And he was trying to show the reader the state of play now in naval warfare, and I think that was great. Uh, I go into it, I probably, the ship scenes, and there are ship scenes in almost all my books. You get a little bit of the naval technology comes out in those, but I'm still trying to focus really on the challenges that the people are facing and uh, uh, the challenges set within, within the uh, parameters of an actual historical problem at hand. So, and I try to think through what would be realistic. I really try to avoid, uh, uh, far-fetched scenarios. Now you may, may seem far-fetched that my guy happens to be involved in so many critical points of the revolution, but you know, that's just a story. You can call it Forrest Gump meets George Washington or whatever, but I do try to bring it out through the people, uh, the men and women, civilians, how, how the war impact. And that's really where I, but if you go to the Naval side, I get a little bit more involved in the types of craft, types of weapons on the craft, those types of things. And then in a later later books, I create some fictional 
uh, British Navy SEALs and a few, few. I, so I do that occasionally, a little tongue. I do inject a little fun in that way. Uh, but uh, primarily I'm focusing on the challenges these people are facing. And, uh, you know, and I do try to present the British side. I don't know if we're going to talk about that at all, but I, yeah, yeah. I try not to characterize them the way other movies and some books did. Uh, they had a job to do. In their mind, we were traitors and disloyal to the king. Ironically, the British, many of the British, and almost all the British officers leading the British in that war were sympathetic to the American cause. So they were very sympathetic to Americans need all the rights of Britons as Britons in America. Uh, they were Whigs. Uh, and the Whig party, uh, they got bounced. Uh, some of the, some of the conflicts in America turned some of the Whigs forced them to vote with the, uh, the Tories. But the fact is there was a large population of British officers and in Britain, politicians and others that were sympathetic and thought the king uh, was too, too heavy handed with, with the colonists. And they wanted an accommodation. They, you know, we were still traitors. You know, they were not happy that we were breaking from the crown. But you got to think for the people like that, this was a really uh, difficult and for them because they didn't want to just come in and hammer us, at least in the beginning. As the war grinds away, patience starts to wither and maybe maybe they get a little harsher. The real, real, the real conflict, the real visceral hatred was on the American side, loyalist versus patriot. And that was a civil war on its own. I try to portray that too. So the loyalists, and frankly, the loyalists, they're only their only fault was that they were loyal. <laughs> I mean, they just felt we're British. We have to support the king no matter what. Uh, so this was a, a, a really a, a real issue that pounded from the very prior to the actual outbreak of hostilities, but all the way through. And uh, I think that's really how we won the war. The loyalists were eventually suppressed and forced out of the battle space and they, they weren't the factor the British were hoping enough loyalists. And they put quite a few in their military. But they just never got the center of gravity they needed to uh, help win the hearts and minds of people. And that's what it's about. And there was little thought other than he's your king, support him. And they got to a point where that was uh, the idea of winning hearts and minds, which they had in the beginning. At this period, how will later issue proclamations, welcoming everybody back. He was a magnanimous victor after he swept and took New York and was now in the jerseys when he, this is my, my follow-on book, uh, he becomes magnanimous. Uh, but as the war, as the war progresses, uh, both sides get more tense, but there was a lot, a lot of vicious, brutal actions taken by loyalists against Americans, Americans against loyalists and both sides against the neutrals. So it was a, uh, that's the one that's the one aspect of the war that is uh, very 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 uh, important to what ultimately happened but little reported on by the average american little little understood
I'll quote the cartoon Futurama of, of all things. They have a whole neutral planet. What makes a man go neutral, right? That's the ones that frustrate you. And I think we find that even today, we lament the undecideds every election. And you say, you have these polar opposite candidates. Like, if you can't decide between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and you, you just want to get on MSNBC or Fox so that they'll put you in a panel, because there's uh, how can you not choose? You shouldn't even have the franchise if you can't choose from the polar extremes that we usually offer up as presidential candidates. And new, th these are all things you're talking about here in the Patriot Spy and the Yankee Doodle Spy series that are not what you get from a lot of not just novels, but a lot of nonfiction reminding people that this was a real human endeavor and that you had all the same conflicted human feelings and problems you had. There's one letter by George Washington about my home state of New Jersey. You were saying that just now, and he says, you know, the British marched through the jerseys and they and they they wave and cheer the British. We march through, they wave and cheer us. Then the British come back again and they switch sides again. What what do these people want? Where where do they really stand? That, that's maybe even worse than being a neutral, right? Just whoever is there that day pointing a, a gun at your head is is who you're gonna go with. So I, I want to stress that for people. You pick up this book, you're getting a nuanced portrait. You're you're not just getting a spy book. You're not getting this two-dimensional portrait where it's just the British are the villains and the Americans are the victims, that there's conflicts and, and people within those groups that are, that are fighting each other. Yeah, so in many ways, this was a young person's war. We think today, because of the three-cornered hats and the wigs, uh, these are all old, stodgy men, but no, no, no. The average Continental Army soldier is, is very early 20s, uh, usually a landless man, uh, farmhand types and laborers. Uh, the guys that stuck it out, the, the, the dead-enders, you know, Washington was down to 1,500 at one point in the war. These were all young guys. Washington himself was in his 40s. He was one of the older guys in the uh, service. So Hamilton was early 20s. Uh, uh, John Lawrence, his counterpart, early 20s. This was a young person's war on both sides. And a lot of the heroes and heroines were barely teenagers uh, during this period. Uh, Andrew Jackson who famously got slashed by a British officer. He was 14 and uh, very much involved in the war. So this was a war of youth, not of, uh, uh, you know, these would have been Gen Z, Gen Xers, millennials, whatever you want to call them. But they were young people fighting and also diverse. You know, you know we didn't talk about African-Americans in the war, but the numbers vary, but you can safely say at least 5% of the Continental Army were African-American, uh, sometimes up to 15%. So they were there too, and they were integrated in the units. There was talk about creating, Rhode Island had one black, all black regiment, but uh, they were there shoulder to shoulder throughout the war. One of the great tragedies that they didn't get the benefit from it, uh, that I'm sure they thought they would, uh, and many around them thought they would. But uh, so they were young people, it was pretty diverse, uh, and it shows that the idea brought people together. Uh, there were ideas that really made uh, uh, new German immigrants, the old English, the Dutch, some Native Americans sided with the, with the Americans, not all, but we did have some of the tribes side with us and a, a, uh, at least a portion of the African American population did as well. So, uh, not quite the type of people you'd see in a lot of the presentations in Hollywood and all that. And I try to bring that out too as much as I, I can. It, it was a young person's game.
because you mentioned that, I wanted to ask about General Charles Cornwallis specifically. He commands the British. He is the enemy in the Yankee Doodle Spy series, or at least the foe. And easy to just cast him as the the devil speaks with the British accent as the as the actor who portrayed the he was a fictionalized version, but in the Patriot, he says, sure, of course, we're the villains and they're burning churches. And it's very two dimensional in that Mel Gibson movie. But in the era of your service, uh, certainly in my lifetime, and my, my mother is, is even British born, the United Kingdom is our closest ally. And they have been by this point in time for over a century since the Great War, when we really have this reconciliation and begin to get close and eventually develop the special relationship. So how did you approach casting the British, doing just what you talked about, so that they wouldn't be a cartoon villain, but that you would show that, yeah, they, they were indeed the foe and they were who the Amer Americans, and I, and I say Americans, but I mean the people who were, were in rebellion, so Americans were on the side of the British, of course, but how did you approach that so they wouldn't be a cartoon villain, maybe even pick up a few British readers who say, yeah, I can enjoy this story, we, we don't come across as just real SOBs, or this is just what happened at the time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I remember having a discussion uh, when I was assigned to NATO, uh, talking with one of the British officers <laughs> and the American Revolution. They don't like to talk about that, but I, uh, they dismissed it and said, well, you know, we lost because we didn't have good maps. And uh, that was partly true, actually. But uh, I had to put myself in their shoes. That's what I did. I said, okay. Uh, they're serving a country, they're serving a king, they're given a mission, uh, assuming they're not, you know, uh, psychopaths, or sociopaths, uh, how, would they, how would they handle this? Uh, and remember, most of the British officers were or considered themselves gentlemen. So uh, that helped. And there was back then a uh, the zeitgeist of the 18th century was gentlemen, I hate to say that, and gentle women. Uh, ran things, and there was a certain modicum of of uh, cooperation and genteelness amongst people. So even when they they parlayed and talked, there was always uh, at that level. It never got vitriolic. So I just try to put them as people given a job, having their own cause, put on this foreign soil, and, and we got to get this done. So I create a fictional counterpoint to Creed, British made major name uh, James Sandy Drummond, uh, who's a cavalry officer who then later winds up becoming the British uh, intel uh, officer. And, uh, and he stays in the series. So I show that pretty much to Drummond, who is tough. He's a tough, no-nonsense no Scott, but he just wants to get the job done. And he'll do some pretty bad things. He actually hires a, a team of pretty... I guess the one area where I get a little caricature-ish is uh, three of his British cavalry guys he recruits to help him do their intel stuff. They're kind of, uh, at least two out of the three are kind of creepy. One's, one's not so bad. Uh, so I did have to have that just to put a little spice in the, in the story. So they're the ones that act a little bit uh, over the top, in, uh, both with men and women that come into their power. But generally speaking, and I bring in other loyalists, and I have scenes where they're discussing the war, and I just put them as people in a situation that are trying to get through it, which is really what it's like in any conflict, even, even today. So uh, that's how I try to do it, kind of red team it a little bit, I guess, 
and and I think I think it worked. Uh, uh, I think uh, I think I build the Drummond, and I later on bring another in the second book, and others, an American loyalist working for Drummond, and show him again another person thrust into this, trying to do a job, and uh, what happens to him. So I, I I do build up that side. As for Cornwallis, he's one of my favorite British generals. Uh, yeah, he uh, he was one of the commanders uh, in that famed night attack, and it was his forces that had the spearhead that cut off the Americans. And then later he chased them through the jerseys. Uh, he was all really the forward leaning guy of the, of the, the crew, Clinton, uh, Clinton, how in, in Cornwallis are the three top British commanders. Now Cornwallis gets a bad rap because he surrendered at Yorktown. Uh, that'll be in a book that I haven't written yet, but, uh, wouldn't do it himself that, though. <laughs> Talking yeah, about the bitterness of the time, wouldn't do it himself. <laughs> complex set of circumstances that uh, uh, led to that. I, I won't go into it. I'll probably build the Yankee Doodle Spies into that into that little that little uh, ending. But the war didn't end then either, so that wasn't the end. Now, I will say that both sides felt you talked about we're, we're friends with the British today. Even then, there were people on both sides that knew even when the, if there were a full break that Britain and the United States needed to partner in some way. Uh, most of it was economic. And that was the beginning, you know, of the uh, big divide in American politics was over that specific issue. And you had the Republican Democratic side under Jefferson and the other Virginians versus the Federalists. Washington went with the Federalists who said we need economic and other ties to Britain to be maintained and we can do it and still be independent. And uh, that began the, uh, that was the beginning of political factions as Washington condemned them. Uh, uh, it was from that very thing, you know, what do we do with the Brits after we win our independence? Now it got very much more complex, of course. And, uh, and uh, but it was definitely the biggest issue. Uh, even after even after the war, the treaty was signed and everything was done. It wasn't over until the Brits were out of out of uh, the part of North America. They agreed to vacate, and they didn't vacate immediately. So that became an issue. Uh, didn't get resolved till the Jay Treaty, but that was a political, uh, probably one of the first major political uh, uh, crises in the country because that was not well received by the American people. Uh, but Washington felt he had to go with it. So. That British cooperation that we have today stems from all the way back then. In my, even as the war was being fought, uh, people were discussing how do we deal with the, because we need to be part of a British economic system, at least, at least in the beginning. And the British wanted us. The British ultimately signed the peace treaty. Yeah, yeah we, we, we took on several armies and beat them. The French were starting to take colonies from them. The Spanish were getting involved. All that was happening. But it was the British economic interest that really wanted to maintain economic ties with the, the American colonies uh, that really pressed their uh, parliament to, uh, to, to move towards uh, accommodation. And that's what happened. I wanted to mention one item because I didn't want to get too far from the fact that there were legitimate grievances, as they called them at the time. And one of them is in, uh, I wrote a column Back when I was writing for the Washington Times, not the New York Sun as I am now, but it was about 
just the sense of entitlement that Andrew Cuomo had at the time and all these stories coming out about how he had assaulted various women. And it reminded me of Staten Island. And this was some letters that were written that were really stark. These British officers would write home and say they, they were really confused by the fact that these local women in Staten Island just wouldn't you know, give themselves. And, and they, he writes one man very jokingly about, the, about raping a, a local woman, unfortunately. So there were real things going on. There were real atrocities of the, the prison ships. People have heard of those infamous hulks off the coast. People are dying and starving and disease and pestilence. So it, it is important to remember that as this backdrop. This is not just uh, two brothers arguing over who's going to get the car tonight. So that that's something we get here. It's also something we get usually in, in those fictional portrayals. Like I mentioned the portrayal in that Mel Gibson movie, the Patriot AMC's turn is probably one people are very familiar with also turn Washington spies. There are other portrayals of the revolution. Uh, as a child, I love the portrayal. It's pretty obscure, I guess, today. Abbott and Costello's The Time of Their Lives. It's the only Abbott and Costello movie, both Jersey Boys, by the way, where they have this supernatural element in it, which is, is really cool, floating chairs and things like yeah. that. So uh, th those are portrayals that, that I guess stick in your mind and you think of what they were like back then. Even, even the speaking, right? He he still speaks Luke Costello like a kid from Patterson, which is great. It doesn't take you out of it. It would have been ridiculous any other way. What do you find Hollywood gets right and wrong about intelligence gathering as a whole, but specifically in this period when you see it portrayed in a film? Well, I'll say recently it, it gets it pretty good. I've seen some pretty good espionage movies uh, and TV series on Netflix and places like that, Amazon, HBO Max, whatever. Some really good ones. I mean, uh, so I've seen today some where they show uh, the depth and breadth of what it's like to get involved in that work. Yeah, but years ago, of course, it was, you know, James Bond is a caricature, and I actually think Ian Fleming intended it that way uh, for, for a lot of reasons, probably because uh, if he did the tongue-in-cheek he wouldn't be violating the the uh, official secrets act true so uh, so I, I i do think hollywood goes and you know in, in spits and furts both in all kinds whether it's westerns or uh, uh modern war movies cop shows some are caricatures pure mindless entertainment and then others try to take a serious serious look at what it's like to be a policeman whatever military person and military so you got, they get it right, they get it wrong. I've seen, uh, the American Revolution is tough because so little has been done. Uh, here's one, I can't, I should have written down the name, one or two that uh, really small little films that I thought captured the feel for it. I didn't like The Patriot that much. Uh, there were some scenes that were, I thought were, didn't need to be there. Uh, but uh, I do think, I think I liked uh, Turn, which came out, about a year after I finished the Patriot Spy, uh, around the time the Patriots, just after the Patriot Spy got published, it came out. The only thing I didn't like about Turn was they took actual people and totally changed their character and even the things they did. They just took the name and kind of built a fictional uh, set of events around them. Uh, I don't do that. I do. I might modify. Uh, a character to get them into certain s situations, but I try to keep keep that person, that historic person, in character. John Graves Simcoe is probably 
the best example uh, in that book, excellently played by a great actor, Rukin, but it's a caricature. He's creepy. He is, uh, you know, yeah. he's Dwight from the office with a musket. You know, it's just kind of something, something going on with that guy. And you really hate him. So it's all well done. And I really like the series. And I thought the, the atmospherics, the, the approach to the uniforms, costumes, all that was, you know, not perfect, but it was well done, close enough for government work, as we say. And I really, really thought it was great. But there was that, that twisting of who the people were and how they acted. Simcoe, in reality, he was a, a uh, British officer who led a, you know, the Queen's Rangers, which was a uh, crack unit. British and loyal and, and American loyalists, they were really, they were counter guerrillas. Okay. They were, they set a couple of units like that. And these guys were tough, no nonsense, as was he. And he got accused of one atrocity. Not sure it was totally, but generally he was a professional officer. He, uh, after the war, he uh, was very accomplished, became a general, was governor general of Canada, actually helped create what's today the Toronto piece of Canada. Uh, rule that or ran after the British administered it quite well, uh, was on track to be the commander in chief of the British army. Then he, uh, he, he died, but, uh, years after the war, but it was a, a, a great man. And, uh, and there are others like that. So that was an example of, you know, we really need to do that because some of these people weren't quite that way, but it's a challenge. I'd like to see more 18th century in general, and certainly American revolution, you know, Drums Along the Mohawk was a good one. Uh, I think that was Henry Fonda. And, uh, and that part of the war, which I really don't get into in any of my books, only because of geography, uh, upper New York and uh, central New York and upper Pennsylvania and that corner of New Jersey, the tri-state area, there was some horrific fighting that also included uh, Iroquois and other native tribes. So uh, I touch on that a little bit in the, in the upcoming, my upcoming novel. But... Uh, but a little bit further removed. If this is only book one, how do you divide them for book two, book three, and keep people interested in what they're, what they're going to get next? Yeah, yeah. When I started this series, I, I had in my mind to do eight books because it was an eight-year war. So people don't realize that was a long war, eight years, twice as more than twice as long as we were in World War II. So, but I didn't follow, okay, book one is year one. Book I didn't do that. I just, I got into the story. So book one, Here's how Creed starts. Here's how the Yankee Doodle Spies, I don't call them that in the book, but this is how they all come together. This is how Washington uses them. Book two, they kind of take it to the next level. It, book two literally starts the day after book one ends. It just, I just felt I needed to continue and, and tell people what happened. And they're up in Harlem, still defending northern Manhattan uh, from the British. But things that happened with other characters that I went to to give away the story, uh, I had to I had to circle back. So uh, book two takes right off and then carries everybody right through the British uh, chasing the Americans across New Jersey and ends with the uh, Battle of Trenton and Washington's crossing. Then the third book picks up right after that because, oh my God, we're in the, I can't just, okay, break, break. Now we're into a year later. Washington just finished this thing. Now what's going to happen? So I, the third book takes them back over Second Trenton, Princeton, and then the Winter War. It goes into the Winter Spy, and it goes into the Winter War, where the British actually lost more killed than they did in the in the maneuver campaigns. 
and that became a, a war over food and foraging and all right there where you live, all that part of New Jersey. And I, I actually create a fictional in the second book, a fictional town near Hackensack called, I call it Ridley, New Jersey. And it's sort of, uh, there's a tavern there. Think of the, uh, the tavern scene in Star Wars, all the, the weird characters in and out. So I create that in this fictional town somewhere near Oradell or Oradell, New Jersey is or wetlands and all that. And I try to describe that swampy, uh, even though it's all built up around it, it was still pretty uh, wild west in many ways. And I bring in characters from that area uh, uh, to uh, flesh out the Yankee Doodle Spies team. And, but I, that's how I, I just followed. Now this fourth book, a different tra trajectory, the fourth book, Reed leaves the air and he's being sent north to help spy on John Burgoyne's invasion from Canada. And this one, he goes off on his own uh, without his posse. And he's got to figure out a cover and how do I get up there and, and do something. And he figures out pretty early on and he gets, there's some intel that uh, he gets from Colonel Fitzgerald, some tools, some a little bit of trade craft, mostly maps and other contacts that were left up there after the American campaign in Canada in 75, 76, that he get connects with some of those people. But that's a whole different approach. It's a different kind of book. He uses a much more sophisticated cover. In the other books, he goes undercover typically as a cowboy. Uh, there were cowboys and skinners were uh, basically gangsters that fought for each side. So the cowboys were uh, pro-British and the skinners were pro-American. Uh, mule skinners and uh, cattle rustlers. So uh, these guys were really just gangs. Some and they would they would uh, uh, basically they would steal from either side, but uh, they uh, use that as a cover. And he he actually goes uh, uses being a cowboy supporting the British to get back and forth through British lines and interact with the British. When he goes north, it's totally different. He creates a much more sophisticated cover. Uh, does a little bit more. This is a little better thought out because it's a long-term thing. Uh, but then when he gets, once he gets up there with the British, it hits the fan and uh, it is like nonstop. Uh, think of, think of the last of the Mohicans kind of action or uh, as he, there are a lot of battles that took place up and down Lake Champlain, Lake George and the upper Hudson. So that's all, that's all in that book. And my other upcoming books go off in different trajectories. The fifth one's already written, totally different, totally, oh. totally different from any of these. And the sixth one, which I'm a third of the way through, uh, also that's called the South Spy. So wink, wink, the war shifts to the South. Uh, and uh, of course, Creed's got to be involved in that too. So I try to make his covers a little bit more interesting and, and he's going to go a little deeper. But uh, he'll get involved someday with the Swamp Fox, and they got all these other a lot of characters down south to inter intermingle with. So uh, from the Patriot, that fun. was the fictionalized version of Mel Gibson's character was based yeah. on the loosely on the Swamp him Fox and the combination of him and Moultrie and a few of these other. I mean, some iconic figures throughout the, the South, and I mean these people that that fought at the Battle of Kings Mountain were unbelievable. I mean, these are tough people. The people that fought in our Western Fringe, which is today, you know, the Shenandoah Valley, Western PA. These were tough hombres. And uh, they've been, you know, just carving a life out of the wilderness, you know, constantly engaging with the, the native tribes and 
um, fighting them from the Carolinas, you know, from South Carolina up to uh, upper New York. Uh, tough hombres, uh, really probably our secret sauce in uh, helping win the, the war. We just, you can't, you can't train people to be that way. They grow up just mean and won't give up. And uh, that, that's how you, that's how you win things. Well, Scott, I could talk to you all day. S.W. O'Connell is the name on the cover of the books, the Yankee Doodle Spy series. Thank you so much for sharing the Patriot Spy with us today. This has given people a taste, and that book is the first taste of your writing. As you can see, we're both excited about this period. It's still very alive for us. It can be alive for you, too, if you get hooked on the right book. And these certainly are all the right books. So pick them up, starting with the Patriot Spy series. If you know a young person, put this book in their hands. It reminds them these were, these were young people, too. They had a great future ahead of them if they were willing to fight. Not all of them made it, but we are their posterity. And it's so great to read about them like this, where they would risk everything to get Washington the intelligence he needed in order to win the war. These are great summer reads. Please do pick them up. And they're the next best thing, really, to taking the time machine all the way back then. And we don't have to worry about smallpox. So it's great to read them in this form. Thank you so much again, Scott, for taking us back to those days when liberty hung in the balance. Thank you, Dean. I appreciate it. And have a great 4th of July. Again, the book is The Patriot Spy, book one of the Yankee Doodle Spy series. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Scott O'Connell for joining us and for sharing a story of the patriots who fought the shadow war for American independence, and also for giving those Brits a fair shake too, as well as those loyalists who wanted to stay colonists. You can visit our guest at yankeedoodlespies.blogspot.com, on Facebook, or at S.W. O'Connell on Twitter. Also remember our guest's former Army buddy, Thomas J. Howley, and check out my interview with him about his novel, Wolf of Clontarf, the Irish, the Vikings, and the foreigners of the world. If you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube channel for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. You can also enjoy a couple of dozen documentary-style videos like this one, and you can find about 250 or so. Wow, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> Those are interviews that I've done over the years at HistoryAuthor.com. They're also still in the iTunes archives, still in the iHeartRadio archives. Wherever you're listening now, you can find them. And I think you'll find a story that you'll enjoy and a book you want to pick up. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Scott O'Connell, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.